If you use the internet on a daily basis, and chances are you do, you probably don't put much thought into cybersecurity. You know, your network connections, the pages you visit, the files you download. You should be thinking about these all the time. Welcome to And Security for All. Your host is Kim Hakem. We're here to help you understand, in general terms, how and why your cybersecurity should be kept in check. Now, here is Kim Hakem. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, I'm Jonathan Kimmett. Uh, Kim has asked me to come back and have a little fun on the uh, on the radio show, and I've got a great topic today. Uh, before I get into it, let's talk about a couple of events that are coming up for, for Kim. Uh, starting the year strong on the events and some great conferences and stuff, it looks like we've got a uh, FutureCon event coming up in Dallas uh, on July 31st. Uh, I'm going to read it off here. We've got Detroit. Detroit on February 15th in Seattle on February 29th. So uh, great uh, start of the year. We're having some good events, some good speakers. Uh, and I think, I, I think I've got it on my calendar that I'm going to be speaking at one of the events coming up pretty soon, uh, possibly in St. Louis. Um, so I, I've got a great topic and we're going to be talking about some fun stuff. So just like today, we're going to be talking about some fun stuff. Um, one of the things of uh, over the last couple of months, really, is we've seen uh, maybe it's an uptick, maybe uh, we're just getting bombarded on stuff. But we've had some major major breaches uh, happening in the in the country. Uh, there's some here in the local area here in Oklahoma uh, that I've I've been dealing with with my clients and interacting with people with and they've kind of taken on a different flavor, uh, a different way that the attackers are utilizing uh, the tactics and they're utilizing the information. And so I asked uh, a friend of mine, uh, Tom, Tom Vincent, to come on with me. He's been on before. Um, we've worked a lot together on lots of different issues, but I really wanted to get his thoughts on this new tactic that they're using and how it affects the organization and how it affects people. So, Tom, thanks for coming on. Uh, for those who don't know you, give me just a little bit about yourself and kind of what you do and who you are. Sure. I, I was told not, there would not be a quiz, so <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, uh, for those in the audience that aren't familiar with me, my name is Tom Benson. I am one of the cybersecurity and data privacy group practice leads at Gable Gottwalls. We're a general services law firm located in Tulsa, Oklahoma with offices in Oklahoma City and Houston as well. Um, I started our data privacy, our cybersecurity data privacy practice group back in 2015 with another former partner of mine. Um, since that time, we've seen things change a great deal, both in terms of, uh, just to echo what Jonathan was saying before, the attacks that are used, the, the defenses that are raised against them, as well as in general, individuals' perceptions towards their information and how to protect it. Um, in addition to uh, my practice, I also uh, teach this topic, uh, cybersecurity and internet awareness, to Boy Scouts, as well as uh, lecturing on some professional branding issues and other uh, topics involving uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's great. So Tom and I oh, have spent... One, sorry, Jonathan. Oh, yeah, one thing I, I, I forgot to mention, just because my students will not let me forget it. Uh, I also teach cybersecurity law and policy at the University of Tulsa this semester. Uh, and a shout out to uh, all my students uh, who are hopefully, or at least some of them who are hopefully uh, 
watching this or listening to this today. And I'm kind of hoping that you'll get give them some bonus points if they watch and report back to you what they learned from it. We'll do what we can. <laughs> hey, guys, I tried. I tried. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, Tom and I, you, we have spent, we've spent many, many, many hours and days and trenches and a variety of different incidents and, and talking about this stuff you know, just in general. And so we got actually on this conversation about these new tactics uh, a couple of days ago. Um, and uh, prepping for the show and such. And we had a great conversation. So I hope we can capture some of that magic <laughs> back in this. Uh, but for, they would find it interesting. <laughs> well, I find it interesting. I think you find it interesting. <laughs> so I hope they find it interesting. Um, just a reminder, make sure you guys post your, uh, your comments in the chat. I'll try to work them into the conversation. Uh, we always have great interactions with our audience. So uh, please feel free to ask questions and, and, and really pick our brains on this. So, so, Dom, let me let me bring it up to you as I brought it up to you before, and and it is that it seems like the attackers are otherwise slightly changing what they're doing. Um, we've had a couple of breaches here very recently that the attackers didn't necessarily fully ransom, fully encrypt everything. But one of the things they did do is they reached out to the data subjects directly or the, the people who were in the data breach directly. And they says, hey, I, we, we compromised XYZ organization. We have your data. If you want to give us money to delete it. Um, now, a lot of times you're going to see that and it's a scam. You know, it's just somebody trying to get it. And in one of the, the breaches, uh, I was able to actually go and find the data out on the dark net. It wasn't anything fancy. I got one of the emails that they sent to an individual or a victim and, and got it back in and looked to see where they were sending him and I found the merchant on the dark net. I was able to see the four-ish whatever million records that they had in this merchant site. And... I was helping my customers, you know, our clients go through that and make sure if they were in it or not and what to do and how to think about it. And so it really kind of started that conversation and it has been going around the industry a little bit. And I really wanted to get your thoughts. So, um, you and I know about the, 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 the breach in the organization. We're trying not to say names, just to keep them out of it. But it, what do you think, you know, just from a tactic level, about the attackers going after the individuals directly that were involved, you know, their information was all in the breach versus just going after the organization looking for money. I mean, it's a, it's a fundraising process both ways, but, mm -hmm. but now they've switched to the end user. What, what's your thoughts on that? Well, a, a couple of thoughts really. And, and, and also just to clarify as, we, as we've, there's one in particular that I think you're, you're referring to, but this is not, this is becoming more common. That's not the only healthcare entity that's been subject yes. to this. There's another one in another part of the country that, that went through this towards the end of last year as well. And I think, and so as far as the, the direct contact with the, the patients, uh, it's interesting because the terminology that's being used to refer to that is uh, by some writers is swatting, which we typically think of uh, in a, um, really in a video game context is where we've seen it a lot, although we've seen it more lately in the political context. But, um, you know, the, we've seen horror stories of people who are playing video games and someone swats them at their house, you know, calls the police and says, hey, something is happening at this address that's 
there's some sort of act of violence that's occurring. So you need to get there right away and you, and, and don't, don't try to talk to them, just act. And sometimes that can result in uh, a loss of life here. The, the swatting involves the direct contact of the patients by these criminals to really put pressure on the covered entities or the hospitals to pay the ransom. Now, what's interesting about that is Jonathan and I were talking about uh, recently is, one, that, that expands the risk profile for those hackers considerably because you have multiple, now you've got multiple points of contact. And in some instances, arguably, in full disclosure, I do not practice criminal law. I've not, I'm not now, nor have I ever been a prosecuting attorney or a criminal defense attorney. Uh, there are people in my, in my firm that have done that and, and do that and are much more familiar with these issues than I am. But when you have this sort of direct contact uh, with the patients and there is some illegal activity that's happening, uh, in these cases, as Jonathan mentioned, you, you did say your your clients received a demand for money, correct? Yes, yes. So th these sorts of criminal actions or these sorts of actions become much more directly criminal as opposed to uh, the attacker uh, moving against an entity and uh, moving behind the scenes and their one point of contact is with that entity. Now you've got a point of contact with, with the entity plus all of these individuals that they've been uh, in contact with. But also, as Jonathan and I were discussing, what's interesting to me, and uh, Jonathan and I have had discussions on uh, breach response. It's something that we've, we've, we both have experience in, and I'll, I'll turn it back to you, Jonathan, to get your thought on this, is uh, this third party driving the disclosure timeframe is, is really a new thing. Um, yes. Previously, we've seen, you know, the, the, the standard approach was there was a hack, a company may discover it, or a third party in the form of the FBI or some other, uh, perhaps a uh, professional services provider to that company may discover it, let the company know. And then it was really in the company's time frame of investigating uh, determining the scope, determining the necessary notification steps, and providing notification to the affected individuals. Now, uh, one in, with respect to at least one of these healthcare entities we're talking about, the attack occurred, and excuse me, I'm checking my notes here. The attack occurred uh, in the middle of November. Uh, it was, let's see, uh, the breach was ultimately reported to have occurred on November 19th is when it was, well, when it was detected anyway. Um, there was unlawful access between November 19 and November 25. The hackers in that instance started reaching out to this, to the patients of this entity uh, as soon as, uh, excuse me, I thought I had this, I thought I had this handy here. Um, They've been contacted as early as, I believe, the first or second week of December. And then it wasn't until December 20th that this healthcare entity notified the patients. And then there was a press release a few days later. So you're, to me, I think this is a, there is not only this issue of the 
the risk that the, the hackers may be taking, but also the increased risk to the entity when it comes to, at the very least, reputational damage, sure. but also increased, there's some increased legal risk is there as well. And so from your side, Jonathan, I'd be interested in your thoughts on, on what this um, accelerated, essentially this accelerated uh, visibility of the breach uh, could result in. Well, I mean, I think there's a couple of different things there, and and there's there was one where the attackers reached out to the SEC directly, saying, uh, not in these two, but a different industry. But it was they reached out to the SEC and says, "Hey, we compromised this this organization, and you know, here's the proof." So here's the thing that I see: um, when an organization has had an incident. Uh, there is a process that you have to go through in ter- determining if it actually happens, because sometimes you'll get notices and it's not real. There is a process of going through what your scope is. So what is ha- what has been affected? Where did the attacker get to and what did they do? Um, you know, long has been the process of asking for proof of life or the proof of the data exfiltration. You know, what do you have? And sometimes you'd get it, and sometimes they'd say, well, you just have to to guess what we got, but we got it, and you got to give us money if you want to find out. So there's these things that have been happening over the last 10 years, really. You know, it's been a good long time that this process has been going on. Um, and the attackers, of course, have changed their tactics, you know, several times. Mm-hmm. But if you are an organization that's been hit you have a couple of different things that you need to worry about. Number one, you need to determine what has happened. Number two, you need to stop the bleeding. So you've got to stop the problem, whatever it is, either plug up the hole, uh, stop the attacker from getting you know inside the network, they do whatever. You've got to get people aware of the problem in the appropriate way. So you have to do your incident response. You may even have to do disaster recovery, depending on what happened and or your business continuity. Mm-hmm. That takes time. You know, in, in large organizations, that may take weeks, honestly. Um, and because of that, if an attack has happened to an organization and they do everything right, where they've started their incident response, they started their DR, they started their BCP, um, that may not be fast enough for the attackers because the attackers want that that money. Now, the other thing to remember is sometimes the attackers will put pressure on an organization to get them to pay quickly before the organization either figures out they don't really have anything or figures out that they can recover from their backups or recover from a variety Mm -hmm. of things. So you do have that timing there that the longer you have to evaluate a problem, the the more opportunity you have to find that solution that does not involve paying the ransom. Now, to that end, you still have to deal with that reputational harm that you were talking about. So Mm -hmm. you really want to, most organizations want to get out ahead of any sort of breach announcement to let people know and to just, I don't want to say spin it because it's not the right word, but they need to control that message as it's going out. They want to, they want to be the ones to contact the individuals. They want to, and you and I have had this conversation. Oh, yeah. In fact, we have done it, you know, where we've had incidents in the past where we had to, okay, let's get out there before they see it on the public TV. And we want to make sure that uh-huh. they trust us. And there's a whole big process. Well, the attackers know that. Yep. And so they're going to come in and put pressure on the organization saying, well, 
Uh, we don't really care what you have to do. We want the money. Or if they're trying to use another tactic, whether it's harm the organization, harm them reputationally, whatever. So when you speed up that timeline, that puts a lot of organizations um, in a bind because they may not be able to move that fast. Now, I would hope that as organizations grow in their IR processes, that they will take that in consideration. Also, we have a lot of privacy compliances out there now that require notification within X amount of time, whether that be 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours, within a week, whatever it is. So if there's a suspected incident, a, a suspected breach or a suspected uh, infiltration or exfiltration, whatever it may be, you have a certain amount of time to be able to get it in. Well, here's what tends to happen whether it's suspected or you had to do it for a known breach, people will go, well, we don't know. We're still trying to figure that out. They may not know. They may not intentionally know that there has been an incident and a breach because they don't want that timeline to start. That's right. And they want to string it out as long as they can. Now that's dangerous. Um, and I think that that's from a reputational point, really dangerous, but I also think that that's coming back on the attacker saying, oh, no, we got your data. You know, trust us. Uh -huh. We got it. Bam. We have, you know, we post it online or we post it like what they're doing now where they put it out for purchase uh, by the individual data subject. So I think a lot of this comes down to organizations do need time to do IR, DR, and BCP. Um, but this new process is is going to speed that up. I mean, they're going to have to be able to respond very quickly to this. Well, and I want I I do want to give the the entity that I was just mentioning credit in that you know the time frame that I gave you was when their their actual written notice went out, and it, which again under the law you have depending on the state you have X number of days or you have to do it as as ex expeditiously as possible essentially but this particular entity actually was reaching out to patients even before the the emails from the hacker came out through the tools that it had and right. you know we have through through their um uh through email and through other through other lines of communication that they had which you know it, i think is what we're going to start seeing i mean you and i have gone through this where I, there, and certainly from a legal standpoint, the, the, the more you can minimize the communication about a particular incident, the better. If you can put right. everything in one letter or one communication and get it out, you know, that's ideal because then you're, you've got one consistent story that you can control the messaging. Right. But here, you know, where you have something that is, that may, you've got a, sort of a floating time frame that you may not be familiar, you may not be aware of. If, if at some point this is going to be communicated directly, then like you said, your, your IRDR, um, you know, and just to clarify the, you might, you might explain IRDR just for those on the, on the call that may not be familiar with those terms. So incident response, uh, that is your process of dealing with the incident right now. That's basically how you're going to stop the bleed um, and secure your environment. That's your incident response and how you log in, communicated, incident command, all those different things. Your DR, your disaster recovery, is the process of 
uh, you have a whole bunch of servers that are now down. How do you recover? Do you recover through backups? Do you recover through rebuilds? Do you have a hot site? Do you have a cold site? So incident response is how you deal with the immediate situation of an attack or an, uh, an infiltration. The DR is how do you bring things up after you have dealt with the incident. And then your BCP, your business continuity plan, that is how do you continue to function while you're in the business, how do you continue your business function through the process of IR and DR? So those are the three terms. Sorry, I will use those kind of interchangeably <laughs> at times. Um, and I don't want to confuse anybody in the audience, but uh, that IR, DR, BCP process is how are you going to deal with the situation, recover from it, and make sure that the business continues to function throughout the entire process. That's right. And, and and even in the, if all of that stuff works and it's, it's something that happens that is beyond the control of the entity and the messaging gets out there, uh, the question I, I am often asked in these situations is, well, are we going to get sued? And the answer is probably. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that they're going to win, but this is, as, as I mentioned before, I've been doing this in our practice since 2015. I, Jonathan, you've been doing it even longer than I have. Um, but one thing that really hasn't changed about this is that this is something that people take personally. If yeah. my information is out there, I don't care if you don't think it has any value. To me, it has value, and I'm going to bring, you know, I'm going to bring legal action in some cases because that may be all I can do. Right. For. Uh, for somebody to pay me for this inconvenience. Right. And it's, I can tell you just from experience in in teaching on this, it is frustrating as more and more people learn about this. And certainly I've seen this with my students of, well, what kind of protection does my information have? And without, without going down the the rabbit hole of, of changes in our, in our uh, information security uh, and privacy laws that would be beneficial. um, I think, in a, in a situation like this, you typically see these sorts of lawsuits, I think, more often than in other contexts, because in part, there's not really anything that you that the company can do to undo that breach. Right. You know, there there are there are often uh, offers of identity theft protection um, without getting into the the uh, utility of those. I know from speaking with other attorneys that I've worked with on breach incidents that the average opt-in rate for those tools after a breach is at the time between seven and 10%. Yeah. And so there's a, and again, that is not any sort of immediate fix. That is protection against something happening, but in the if if the if you have the mindset of I want somebody to fix this right now, we're generally an impatient society when you want things fixed right now. Sure. There's sure. not really any way to do that in the, in this sort of situation. Well, but I mean, and that's really kind of the the question that I brought up to you the other day, and really why we wanted why I felt like talking about this is important because. Historically, you and I have talked about this where um, 
you know, let's go back 10 years um, before some of the laws out there for private right of action and a variety of other things. If an organization lost your data, it was, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm not a lawyer, by the way, guys, I'm just a, a, an IT person, a cyber guy, but it was really hard for courts to, if someone's data was lost and they sued them for whatever it was, it was hard for courts to really understand what harm actually fell on that user that lost the data. You know, it, it wasn't, uh, you know, okay, your name and your address, social security number is out there, but what negative impact has been on you? And I think that was really hard for the court systems um, and for judges and juries, uh, whoever was doing it, to really kind of go, oh, they didn't like it for sure. No one likes your data being lost, but how to prove that harm? But now, because the individuals may never have seen their data out there, they might, might be the victim of identity theft, mm-hmm. you know, and they might see some effects on that. But how do you prove it was from this data breach or that data breach or this data breach or this one? But now when the attackers are reaching out to the individual data subjects, the individual people in that breach and saying, hey, we stole your data from XYZ organization. If you want to see a copy of it, pay us five dollars. Mm-hmm. If you want us to delete it, give us fifty dollars or whatever the cost was. Oh, by the way, if you want to see someone else's data, give us another five bucks or whatever the cost mm-hmm. is. But now we actually have a direct correlation of an individual's data that has been lost by XYZ organization. And the attacker has reached out to them saying, hey, yeah, we stole your data. They didn't protect it. If you want to delete it, give us some money. So they're being extorted by that. Um, now, I can definitely see the uh, the appeal from the attacker's point of view because the one I looked up at four some odd million records, if they got mm-hmm. 50 bucks per record, that's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think everyone will pay, but let's say they get half of them to pay or whatever the number is, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a money generating process at that point. Sure. But from a user's point of view, I now know, Oh, that attacker got it from this organization. That means that organization did not protect my data. Like they said they were going to do in their privacy policy in their security policy in their blah policy. And here's the proof of it. Well, I, I, just to play the other side. Sure. Um, I would agree that that you could you could identify some damages from that, right? Um, but at the, given that example, I think the 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 concrete the concrete amounts of damages that you could identify are five dollars or fifty dollars because that's, yes. what, that's what they would pay. Yep. But the next step, then, as you mentioned before, is how do you connect that that party's possession of your information to any direct financial harm that may occur. Right. Because keep in mind the, and this is one of the things that, that it's the, the sort of diminishing returns when it comes to some information is enough of it gets out there that it's, it is, it may be harder and harder to pin damages on a single breach when you may have, in one month, say three breaches that impact your personal information. Right. And that's where 
the that is you, that's a, that is why, as you pointed out, it has been difficult for courts to to determine what that to consistently determine yes. what dam, what damages, if any, are suffered. Some right. courts have said, for example, that um, if you are if you have to pay for identity theft protection, if you have to pay to have your credit card uh, uh, reissued. Right. That those are damages, but those are damages that may grant you standing to sue. In other words, you can bring suit because you have suffered this damage. Right. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's what you're going to recover. Sure. Absolutely. But and just for the audience, uh, Tom and I, these are how our conversations go back and forth. And it's always a lot of fun. Uh, depending on the, which side we decide to take on this, but but let me ask you. So let's say I pay the fifty bucks to delete my file, you know, or hundred dollars or whatever it was. I don't remember now. Um, and let's say it did give me standing, and I turn around and I sue the organization for to get my fifty dollars back. Well, I mean, there's going to be a significant amount of fees involved with that. Just, you know, maybe lawyer costs, court costs, process, time and effort. And while that may be okay on my part to prove a point, you know, as a CISO saying, hey, guys, you said you were going to protect my data. Here's your policy saying you were going to do that mm -hmm. and so on and so on. But from the other side, I have to think about from the organizational side, because there's my clients I'm trying mm -hmm. to protect. And now they may have, let's say, 10,000, let's say they lost a million records mm -hmm. um, and they have to defend in 10,000 different court cases. That's a huge impact on the organization just in time. They may not win. The, they, our clients may not have to pay. The courts may not find them you know, where they have to pay the other party, but that's still a lot of time and effort and process involved. Sure, sure. And, and just like with any other litigation, Yep. Uh, you know, reg regardless if it's tied to a breach or anything where there's a large number of cases like that, there is an interest in in settling that to reduce those litigation costs. Yep. I think and and there from the company standpoint, you typically have with a, a settlement, you may be able to to reach a confidential settlement depending upon the circumstances and, and, and everything. Um, so the and also. It's in. It's often in a, a company's interest to do that to avoid uh, discovery, you know. And this is something that we've talked about when it comes to those those before the breach activities, like um, internal discussions on the the uh, uh, strength of your security measures, uh, engagement of an outside cybersecurity firm to do any vulnerability assessments, which are affirmatively required now by many by many federal and state statutes right? Um, to have those sorts of things privileged so that in the event of litigation, they are not discoverable. And, and the plaintiff's attorneys that are bringing suit cannot see them. Right. Now, let me ask you, because uh, we have not actually talked about this, um, but it does bring up the question as it relates to requirements out there, the new requirements, um, and there's, I don't intend to mix, you know, private versus public versus, you know, all the different mm -hmm. things you've got to do. But, you know, let's just talk in a general format of 
um, suspected incident notifications to uh, the government entities, a variety of government entities. So just to kind of keep it general. Mm-hmm. If an organization does have an incident and they've otherwise privileged a lot of those communications off and whatever, but they still have to uh, report that for a variety of things, either contractually or because they do fall under a particular compliance or whatever. Um, how does that help or hurt the an, an individual's, um, I don't know how to ask this, they have to report it. They're required to report it. They have so much stuff under privilege that it may not be easily gotten to figure out exactly how the individual are affected or how they've improved the situation. I mean, it seems to me that if an organization has had a data breach and I want to ensure that they have otherwise put protections in place, I know they've had data breach. They've re- they were required to put a note out for it, um, Mm -hmm. you know, to the regulator or publicly or whatever they had to Uh do. Mm -hmm. But how do I deal with that as a data subject, as someone who I know they have my data, but are they actually doing the steps going forward to protect it? Well, I think as a, as a data, and what, well, before we get to the data subject, one thing I, you raise a good point, one that I want to clarify, which is, which is uh, many of the affirmative notifications that are required under under state and federal law um, may not implicate any information that is privileged. You know, privilege, right. apply, privilege does not apply to the facts. It applies to really the analysis. That's a gross simplification yes. just for purposes of this discussion. Sure, so sure. There are certain facts of a breach or facts of a vulnerability that would, would not be able to be privileged. Right. So from that, from that standpoint, we wouldn't be able to privilege uh, certain elements of the assessment or certain elements of the breach. Um, and, and many of the agencies, the, the breach that is disclosed, for example, uh, may be a very high level explanation of what happened, not necessarily the implication or, right. or the underlying cause even, which may be part of the privilege discussion. Right. So from a, from a data subject standpoint, I mean, personally, and I'm, I'll, I'll look at this as, as, you know, thinking of as a data subject. And sorry, this is going to involve some, some legal reference, and I do apologize to the audience. You know, <laughs> this, is, this is not the most exciting part. Uh, but one thing that I would, I would encourage everyone to start with who's listening on this call, depending on where you are, I'll use Oklahoma as an example, because that's where Jonathan and I are. Um, I'd encourage you to, to start with the particular security notification statute in your state. Oklahoma's is the Security Breach Notification Act. It's actually located, I think, in the debtor and creditor section of the statutes, uh, section 24. Um, and it sets out the requirements for when you are when you must receive written notification in the event of a data breach of impacting your information. And in Oklahoma, you have to be notified if, and again, grossly simplifying here, um, if your name, last name, and first name or first initial, plus some sort of government ID number, driver's license, uh, 
social security number or a financial account number with a pin to access it is wrongly uh, acquired. Uh, and I can't recall off the top of my head if, if access is sufficient. I don't think access is sufficient in Oklahoma because one of the other elements is that it has to have been uh, exposed in such a way that there is a risk of harm to you or actual harm that has been that has occurred and it has to have happened in electronic form so right. you know this the statute was originally passed and has not been amended since its passage in 2008 and so you look at how much things have changed then and this is an aside uh, th this is an aside for, this is why, you know, part of the, the larger scale changes that we, we've talked about uh, should consider some change to data breach notifications. Right. But, and, and that's really uh, more to, it would be great if they would be more uniform in some respect. Sure, sure. But with respect to the data subject, then I think that's part of it is understanding so when, when does my state require that I have to receive notice? Then looking at the entities that you work with, in some cases you have a choice to do this, in some cases you don't. Um, looking at what their records are, their, their, and granted it'd be publicly available records, it wouldn't necessarily be something that, would it, that, that you'd be able to get any confidential information on. Um, looking at what their records are with respect to any sort of uh, security issues. Uh, one good way to do that is to set up Google alerts on companies that you do business with. Right. Um, that will give you a picture of the security of the, of the entities that you deal with. Not a complete picture, but it's a start. Sure. And so then when there is a, a notice of breach by an entity to a federal regulator, let's say, whether it's, it's a securities regulator or a banking regulator or another industry regulator, um, that, that may not tell you a lot about what happened to your information. And this is where some of the it's important to understand the, the different notification timeframes and uh, substance requirements, because this getting back to our original discussion on the um, this new swatting that's being done, why that is a big deal and why this particular entity that I was talking about did some really good things in the way that they handled it. The, timing of a breach notification under Oklahoma law, it, there's not a set number of days. It's, it's, I've, I've forgotten the language off the top of my head. I think it's as soon as expeditiously, expeditiously possible. Some other states have adopted since one of the larger credit reporting agency breaches a few years ago, more specific timeframes, 30 days from, from the, right. the uh, uh, from the, uh, time that a, a breach was detected, not necessarily confirmed, but detected. Um, or 60 days in some cases. And, and I believe it, there's a, uh, there are generally though, not any 
hard and fast time frames to uh, report a breach in many states. So you have that, which is basically a best effort slash up to a number of days reporting time frame that has now been overlaid with this swatting technique used by the hackers to say, well, guess what? There was a breach. Here's what happened. You need to pay us. And then you have often a shorter time frame, uh, for example, with the, the SEC, which is a matter of days in the event of a, of a breach that's determined to be material by a company, to be reported on their 8K. So you have, a, you have the, the, um, the, the set number of days for a small number of days for the SEC, and that's for publicly traded companies. You have, generally, you have a... Um, you have a larger time frame for notifications to individuals under state breach notification statutes. And then you have this X factor of when is a hacker going to tell them that we, that, that they took your stuff. Right. And, and that's what, that is, I think the, that is the, 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 the difficulty now going forward in the tools that you mentioned, the incident response, the business resumption, disaster recovery is those have for years been, been structured around particular time frames. Yep. Either, either substantive time frames for notification, as you see in state statutes and most state statutes, or sort of hard deadline notification requirements, as in some state some state statutes, but also in things like cyber insurance policies, in which you you need to notify an insurance company within X number of days yep. in order to to be able to submit a claim. Yeah. And in fact, the, so I, I, I did a quick search, um, the, in Oklahoma, uh, looking at at least one of the archive documents is as soon as practicable, practicable following discovery. Mm -hmm. uh, but in California, it stays no later than 15 business days after the detecting of the breach. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I know that we have in the past, at least in previous orgs that I've been at, we kind of used the California requirements as, as our starting point to make sure, because we had a lot of people from a lot of different States, a lot of different countries. So we, when we wrote our policies, we tried to meet you know, as broad swath as we could. So we used California laws and a variety of GDPR laws to make sure that we met those. Um, but you're talking about the, uh, the cybersecurity insurance. A lot of these policies now state that you will contact them immediately. Uh, upon a suspected incident. Now they do this for a couple of different reasons. Number one, if they're going to pay for it, they want to be in the process of the, uh, the investigation and the analysis for it. So they want to be in there as soon as possible. And, you know, the way it used to work and the way it still does with my clients, they call their, their insurance company. They get you on with a breach coach, which is a, a law firm that they've contracted with. That breach coach works with you and determines if you've actually had a data breach. Now, normally I don't like saying the word breach. So it's really hard for me to say that word. It's always incident for the world I live in, but they will evaluate the incident to determine if there may have been a breach. And then they will recommend a forensics company or other processes that you have to 
to go through. But that's contractually required. So when mm-hmm. you sign that document that you're getting a cybersecurity insurance, you are now under contractual obligation to do that thing. The other thing to keep in mind is your third-party agreements, whether you are a third party or you have third parties, those contracts and mm-hmm. those agreements will s- sometimes state in there that they need to immediately know or they need to know within 24 hours or three days or whatever. I remember we had a situation where um, we had a vendor who uh, had a, uh, they had a, an incident and they let us know that our the data was involved. And I, I was very fortunate to be able to ask the CEO and the CISO, why didn't you tell us in the three days that's in the contract? Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they did not have a good answer, and I don't blame them. Um, but it was not a good answer. I, my question was, why didn't you meet your contractual agreement? And they were like, um, oh, then we ended the call. There was no actual answer. We ended the call. Mm-hmm. But that is something that organizations need to think about. What are your contractual agreements? And there's going to be times in which you sign an agreement with a third-party vendor that they put requirements back on you um, for a variety of reasons. So that's something to, to keep in mind, that there are these timelines out there that you need to be aware of. It needs to be in your incident response plan of what are those timelines and what you do. I call it a, a compliance playbook. Mm-hmm. You know, in your playbook, you have, okay, you've got 24 hours for this. You've got two days for this. You've got four days for this, whatever it is. And so you can keep track of that during the incident when nobody is really, they're trying to, to, to get back up and running. They're trying to get into DR as quickly as they can. So it, it's really important to keep that in mind. Now, kind of back to the original discussion, the attackers are changing those timelines, Mm-hmm. Because they're getting out in front and they're they're notifying the SEC. It's like, hey, yeah, we 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 compromise these people, and here's the proof of it, Kerchunk, or they're notifying the users, like, hey, well, we've been working with XYZ Corporation, and they are ignoring us. We have your data. If you want, we're we're trying to be nice to you. We're we're, we're, we're we'll delete your data if you give us money. Mm-hmm. And so that's uh, that's the new that's the new world, and I think that this I don't think it's going to change, and I think it's going to get worse. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that 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 does and should significantly change how organizations need to look at this. Yeah, I think that it is, as you and I have discussed before, the the time frame was had always been under the had generally been under the control of the company even if they even if there was a a date they knew okay i have to do it by this date but now that's not always the case and yeah a couple of other things i want to mention to what you said and this is uh something that jonathan and i've spoken on before when it comes to vendor management is those that vendor management process, looking at that as a process, looking at it as okay, every everything that we commit to needs to, you know, essentially your vendor, each individual vendor contract amalgamates into this set of obligations if something like this happens. It's important to understand, okay, 
Um, I have to let I have to let this vendor know within X number of days, this vendor know within Y number of days. And what makes that difficult, especially if you are not approaching it consistently and you have some vendors with accelerated notice timeframes, just as you have some states with accelerated notice timeframes, is um, inf- news about a breach gets out. Yes. There are, you know, even when I started, when we started our practice group back in 2015, there were even then uh, breach uh, aggregation sites that would collect information about breaches and present them. And in some cases, it was a it was a more neutral presentation, and in some cases, it was much more, um, shall we say, much less friendly, shall we say, to the companies that were breached. Right. And so that is another, with respect to the vendor piece, that's another reason why, particularly in looking at, let's connect everything back to the tools you mentioned, Jonathan, IR, incident response, data, uh, disaster recovery, business presumption. That is, I think, going to be an increasing part of, if not already, that IRDR process is not just what are those notification deadlines that we can't control under state law, federal law, et cetera, et cetera, but what are those notification deadlines that we can control? And let's make sure that we control them. Right. And, And often what that means is having either a standard rider or just standard contractual language to say that, one, uh, if there is a breach that you, the vendor, if, if it's our information, you're going to provide us notice within a very short time frame because of these deadlines that we can't control. And then right. conversely, if it's a situation where, where you, are, you have to provide notice to them, uh, because some vendor contracts, they do, they do want you to provide notice not if their information is compromised, but if you have a compromise to your system generally, yep. that that you have enough time to make that identification and you bake into that agreement as much time as possible sure. so that you can have time to do that analysis. Right. Now, and the other piece of that is there are there are a number of vendors I've worked with, and and Jonathan, I know you've seen them as well in different contexts, where if it is a breach involving their system that they want to be part of that incident response chain. Yes. And so adding into the discussion with uh, internal resources of, okay, here's what here is per legal. Here's what we need to say for it. Okay. Here's what it needs to say to be uh, technically correct. And then you get into, okay, for the business lines who are, the contacts with those customers who are impacted. They're going to want to see it to make sure candidly, it doesn't scare their customers away or, or make them think that it's worse than it actually is. Right. But then you layer into that, this requirement of, Oh yeah. And if it's, if it's vendor X's system, whatever we come up with has to go to them so that they can review it and see that it's okay. Then it just adds another layer of, of, delay into your process of getting that out, which is now even shorter because of these incidents that we've been talking about. Yeah. You know, so that's again, from a, from a notification standpoint, that's one of the things that, that as you're establishing those that you need that, that control those where you can, but 
all of this goes into this idea of what is it, what is the, uh, in our incident response, what is the definition of that incident? And I want to go back on something you said, Jonathan, which is very important. And I will say that, uh, on, honestly, um, I do training on this for our firm, for all of our new hires. And it's something that, that we stress there is um, it's not a, you know, it's not a breach until we say it is. Jonathan <laughs> right. is absolutely correct that breach is a loaded term that triggers certain countdowns and other sorts of analyses ultimately requiring notification. Yep. Until it is a breach, in particular, if it is a breach as defined by state or federal statute, then, you know, I've had one client that referred to them as oopsies. <laughs> um, I've had one client that referred to them as uh-ohs. Um, yeah. It just because it was such a was such a departure from any sort of technical term, yeah. they really they that was the way that they stressed. Look, this is hypothetical, undetermined until we make the determination that it's a breach. Yeah. And honestly, it was a really good training tool because the the um, the audience uh, the audience where one of my clients was participating and he used that term. Um, there were a number of people, and I think I was probably one at the time, who were parents of small children. And it's like, oh, that's what my kid says, and I have to figure out what happened. I'm like, yes. Yeah, yeah. Think about it. If you yeah. hear, uh-oh, from the other room, you know, okay, something's happened. Not sure how bad. <laughs> Let's go figure it out. And that's what we were trying to communicate is don't, don't assume anything. Don't, you know, as the lawyers are saying don't have private conversations among yourselves without us because that's what you can find in a lawsuit. Yeah. 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 Let's go figure out what happened and then let's decide what to call it. Right. I, I there's so much there that I want to talk about. We just don't have the time <laughs> um, because we talk about, you know, the, the terms. In fact, I, I, I didn't jump on the person, but I had someone walk into an incident response room here in the last couple of months. And he says, all right, tell me about the breach. And I jumped around. I was like, we is an incident. You know, we're dealing with events and incidents. We're not dealing with the breach. That is anyway, long term that we could get onto that and have a lot of fun with that. So mm -hmm. I do want to recap because we're getting down in the last minute or so. And you know, when when Tom and I got together and talked about this topic, we didn't really have a plan. We had the starting of a, a the discussion, but that was about it. But you know, when we talked about these new tactics, it really comes down to from an organizational point of view is making sure you have a strong incident response, a strong disaster recovery, a strong business continuity. It's an understanding and training of dealing with how your people deal with this. How do they communicate? What words do they use? Understanding what your contractual and third-party management requirements are, your contractual requirements, compliance requirements. So, you know, I think what's happening and you know, and I'm only going to have a little bit more, uh, a couple more seconds, but what's happening is it's these sorts of tactics that are changing from the attacker's point of view is forcing organizations to become more efficient and better with their IR, their DR, their BCP, their third-party management. So it's all the things that we've been harping on for the last, you know, few years and, and getting better. And that's how we're going to improve. At least how, how I think we're going to improve. So Tom, thank you so much for coming by. I really appreciate having this conversation. I hope this is really useful. It was really useful to me. I hope it was useful for other people. Everybody else, 
thank you so much for joining us here at and security for all catch us next week for another great topic uh, make sure you get kim out on the road with the future con events you guys have a great weekend we'll see you next time tuning into and security for all be sure to join your host kim hakem for another episode of the show next friday at noon pacific time and 3 p.m eastern time on the voice america business channel and don't forget you can follow kim on linkedin by searching for kim hakem that's kim h-a-k-i-m to keep yourself posted on all of her upcoming cybersecurity events